We're going to try to finish the chapter off today. 1 Samuel chapter 20 and beginning to read at verse 18. And Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain by the stone at Zel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then, as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, Look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, <clears throat> indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please, let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David, because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field, at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, and David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his place, face to the ground and bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. 
So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We are hungry for your word. We desire to be conformed to your word, and we pray that your spirit would do his work of sanctification as we listen to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Well, last week, uh, Rodney gave a great sermon on the wonderful doctrine that God always keeps his promises. Another way of saying it is that our God is a faithful God. We don't have to worry that 35,000 years from now, God's going to get tired of us and kick us out of heaven. No, God always keeps his promises when he makes a promise, even when it is to his own hurt. And of course, the suffering on the cross Uh, demonstrates that God was willing to keep promises that he had made before the foundation uh, of the world. He is a covenant-keeping God, and he says we must be a covenant-keeping people. Now, the trouble is it's really difficult to keep promises when you are immersed in a society when covenant-breaking is the norm. It just seems like the expected thing to do. From the top of our nation to the bottom of our nation, men, women, and children are constantly breaking their promises. Uh, recently, I was talking with a, a politician, and uh, he had uh, told me what his position was going to be on a, on a vote And I challenged him on the constitutionality of that. And as we were debating back and forth, he admitted it was unconstitutional, especially in terms of original intent. But he said, look, you got to be practical. I live in an agricultural state. And my response was that uh, would this not be perjuring yourself when you are vowing, taking an oath to uphold the Constitution and you knowingly vote on something that is unconstitutional? But it just doesn't seem to phase these guys. Uh, they uh, are so used to promise-breaking that it seems like the norm. In fact, what seems odd, what seems totally out of place, is strict faithfulness. It seems almost heroic to people at times when people do that. And uh, I think of an illustration, uh, 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 J.P. Hayes, back in November of 2009. His story was all over the newspapers as uh, just being an absolutely remarkable guy. And I'm not going to knock him. I think what he did was great. He disqualified himself from the, uh, the PGA Tour over a mistake that he had made, and nobody would have known about it. And so people are, wow, this is just an amazing thing. What had happened is four weeks before, he had been trying out a prototype ball uh, for the Titleist, and uh, somehow that ball was in his bag on the day of this um, uh, event in uh, Q School. They're t- trying to qualify, and... Um, he did qualify. You just have to be in the top five. But uh, what had happened is his caddy had thrown him a ball, and uh, he hadn't paid attention, and it was a non- the non-conforming ball that he had played. Next day, he realized that, oh, great, I used the wrong ball. His caddy didn't know. Nobody else knew that it was a non-conforming ball, but he just thought, I can't live with myself if I don't say anything. So he called up the officials, told them he had accidentally played a non-conforming ball, and uh, was dis- disqualified. So I'm glad that he did that. It shows covenant, uh, it shows faithfulness. But what's amazing to me is people are blown away, you know, over that. There was a time in America where that'd be the normal thing. Of course you're going to admit to that. But nowadays it seems that people are faithful only 
when uh, uh, they do the honorable thing only when it's convenient or when they uh, might get caught not doing it. So today's sermon is covenant faithfulness in an unfaithful age. Now, King Saul, I think, stands as an incredible representative of our current uh, covenant unfaithfulness in the church and outside of the church. He repeatedly broke his promises. In fact, even before he was a king, we see hints of this. Chapter 9, he enters into covenant with Samuel to become the Israel's king. That's what it meant for him to be eating that covenant feast there. And the next chapter, chapter 10, he gets cold feet and he hides. He didn't want to become the king anymore. And um, he wants to back out. In chapter 13, he promised to wait for Samuel, but when it becomes inconvenient to do so, when the pressure is on, he breaks his promise. In chapter 14, he made a rash promise he should never have made. In chapter 15, he fudged about the truth. He told an outright lie to Samuel, and of course, he doesn't follow through on his promise. He breaks his promise. In chapter 17, Saul promised Merab, his oldest daughter, in marriage to the person who kills Goliath. Well, David kills Goliath. Where's Merab? You know, he backs out on his plan. Then, later on in chapter 19, uh, 18, uh, he promises Merab again. Okay, David, if you do something more for me, I'll give you Merab. Almost immediately, he marries Merab off to somebody else. He breaks his promise. Chapter 19, he swears an oath to Jonathan. We don't know what the oath sounded like. You know, may the Lord smite me if I uh, lay a hand on David. We don't know what he said, but it was a solemn oath to Jonathan, and yet he repeatedly tries to kill David. And uh, so Saul represents our age of unfaithfulness and broken promises. And if you think it's easy to resist that, you've probably not yet experienced the incredibly powerful pull that the world can have upon uh, us. There's all kinds of pressure. I can sympathize with Christians who break their promises because that's the easy thing to do. So what I want to be challenging you today is to be faithful in an age of unfaithfulness. Uh, the last time I preached on chapter uh, 20, we looked at the first 17 verses and we saw that Jonathan and David had spoken hurtful words to each other. Part of what was going on is they're probably assuming, you know, is David going to break promises just like my dad and everybody else seems to do? David's assuming the same about Jonathan. And they didn't need to do that. They didn't need to say those hurtful words because both had hearts after God. Both wanted to be faithful. But we're going to pick up at uh, verse 18. And we're going to be seeing where this faithfulness would be tested in various ways. Uh, these verses show that faithfulness does not take the future for granted. Okay, it involves planning. Uh, let's start reading again at verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly... And come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Edzil. And so what he's doing here is he's anticipating the reactions of others, taking precautions. He's looking out for uh, David's welfare. Continuing on in verse 20. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. 
And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So what he's doing in these verses is he is being very cautious uh, to not allow his page to know what he's doing, even if it appears that it would be safe. He's carefully planning out the next three days. Planning is often the main forgotten part of being faithful. People have good intentions, uh, but uh, they fail because they fail to plan. They fail to carry through on their promises. And almost every reason why people break their promises, except for the character issues, almost all of the other reasons revolve around bad planning. If you're forgetful, here's uh, some things that you can do. You can plan to be faithful by having a reminder system. Now, your reminder system might be having your spouse <laughs> help you to remember. Maybe uh, she or he's got a better memory than you do. Or it might be uh, something like a written calendar, a schedule, a personal information management system, an iPad, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe a string around your finger, something, you know, to help you to remember you're going to plan for that. If you fail to follow through on a promise because you've had last-minute financial things that have come up, then it's really important that you have a budget that's realistic, that you have emergency savings over here. You've got a savings for car expenses over here. And your budget is really a kind of planning that you engage in. And don't nickel and dime your budget away with small expenses. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, Beware of little expenses. A small leak will sink a great ship. And uh, I think a lot of times people can't follow through on their uh, plans because they've not had planning with regard to finances. If you fail to follow through because uh, you've made too many commitments, you might want to think about having a family calendar where everybody can put things that have been scheduled on the calendar so you don't say, oops, I already made a promise there and something else was scheduled. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which you can prevent yourself from following through on what you have promised. Planning is a big part of faithfulness. In fact, one of the reasons why God is the most faithful person is he's planned out everything from before the foundation of the world, right? He's the ultimate planner. He's the ultimate faithful one. And that brings us up to point three. If planning leaves God out of the equation, we've got humanistic plans. In fact, we're not going to have what it takes to be able to carry through because we need God to enable us. And in verse 23, Jonathan wants God to be at the heart of his plans. As for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. Now, if the Lord is between David and Jonathan concerning the plans he's talking about, then God is in the center of his plans, right? And so if we ever make promises without consulting the Lord, we're not being faithful. Uh, James says, you shouldn't do anything without saying the Lord willing. You know, we want God to be at the center of all of the plans uh, that we make. The fourth thing that's obvious in this chapter was that neither Jonathan nor David procrastinated. They immediately put their plans into action. And you can see that all through the verses, verses 24 and following, that we read. Very easy to make promises, but faithfulness is about following through on those promises. And we ought to ask God to help us to be action-oriented, not just word-oriented. It's very easy to promise. 
say, Lord, help me to follow through all the time. John Calvin in his institutes said, faith is known by its promptitude. I like that. I remember a story about uh, General Douglas MacArthur uh, during World War II. Uh, there was a river he needed to cross, and he asked one of his engineers how long it would take to uh, uh, throw up a bridge uh, to get them all across, and the engineer said, probably about three days. And so three days later, he comes to the engineer, and he says, uh, can I have the plans? Where, where are you at on that? And he said, oh, no, the bridge is finished. You can cross it now. If you want the plans, you'll have to wait a little longer. We haven't finished those yet. <laughs> And I love that because, uh, to me, that indicates, again, faithfulness is, is driven to produce. This guy was an action-oriented engineer, and uh, Douglas MacArthur learned to really rely upon him uh, uh, in, the, in the battles that, uh, that came ahead. John Calvin again. Faith is known by its promptitude. Its promptitude. Boys and girls... If you have a tendency to procrastinate, I want you to realize that procrastination is not a characteristic of a faithful person. You know, when our kids have uh, broken their promises to us, we've said, you know, go clean your room or clean up the dishes or whatever it may be, and they've not followed through, almost always it's been because they procrastinated, and during the procrastination they've forgotten, and then they didn't carry through on their promise. And I would encourage you, be faithful by being driven to produce right away, right away. A faithful person is compelled by his character to be prompt in obedience. Well, now come some of the tests of whether Jonathan would remain faithful or not. And as we read through these verses, I think you're going to note, notice some mounting tension that is occurring. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Now I can really feel for Jonathan in this situation because he is sitting and waiting. He's waiting for a reaction from his dad, probably dreading a reaction from his dad, but uh, there is no reaction. All there is is an awkward silence. Abner probably knows something's not right here. Probably everybody at the table knows there is something not right here, but they don't dare talk about it. It's just an awkward silence that happens. And sometimes it is the silence that is harder to take because he doesn't give you a resolution to the tension that's coming. That tension just keeps mounting and mounting inside of you. You start to second-guess yourself and wonder, man, did I do the right thing? Sometimes you can make the right decision when it's an instantaneous decision. You know, a grenade's on the floor, you jump on it to save everybody's life. But if you've got five minutes to think about it, you wonder, man, I'm not sure I want to jump <laughs> on the proverbial uh, hand grenade. Uh, there, there, there's more time for that tension to build uh, within you. And it's been the mounting tension that occurs during silence that's made many a man, woman, and child buckle under the pressure. And we're not just talking about buckling under pressure in communist countries. It can be anywhere. It can be anywhere. You know, it could be at your work. Uh, the boss wants you to do some kind of an unethical thing, and, and he knows you don't agree, but he's saying, you need to be doing this, and you've made a decision. I can't do it. He walks into the room. And you're, you're praying, Lord, please help whatever words come out of my mouth to be just the right words to say. And you're getting ready to, to talk about this. He didn't bring up the subject. 
it's not resolved. And you think, oh, you, you got this tension because you know something's going to be happening, but it's not happening uh, right now. And uh, uh, take a look at verse 26. That's what happens here. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he is unclean. Now, it's amazing to me that Saul would even expect David to show up. To me, that seems crazy. You know, he's trying to kill David, and David's going to show up. But somehow he does. Uh, But anyway, uh, at the end of the day, Jonathan still doesn't know. And so some people are tempted to buckle in the mounting uh, tension that occurs before you get into trouble, before the trouble breaks out. Other people buckle uh, when they are actually confronted with the dreaded question. Take a look at verse 27. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? Now this was the question that Jonathan dreaded. And everything hinged on how he answered that question. Now for you, the question might be a little bit different. The question might be admitting to having broken something or admitting to having done something wrong. But it might be similar to Jonathan's. It might be standing up for somebody uh, that you love, for a, for a friend. For uh, United States Senator Edmund G. Ross of Kansas, it involved making the right vote. This was back in 1866, and uh, the radicals of that time had uh, captured both houses of Congress. Now, the year before, uh, President Andrew Johnson had just infuriated the radicals by vetoing every bill, unconstitutional bill, that they had uh, brought up. And uh, they were trying to punish the South. He was trying to bring reconciliation within the nation. And furthermore, he said, look, these are just blatantly unconstitutional. You're taking away all kinds of rights from Southern citizens. The Bill of Rights is just being trampled upon. And not only that, you're not allowing them to even be a part of the nation. It's just a military uh, takeover of this nation. They couldn't have access to the courts, only to the military courts. And he said, no, nothing do. And he vetoed those. Well, now with the new elections... They passed the bills. They were veto-proof. And so they had this radical reconstruction program. So Andrew Johnson just said, fine, I'm not implementing your plans. I am the executive officer. I'm the one who would have to implement. I'm not going to do it. Well, that really ticked them off. So what they did is they put their their darling uh, uh, (laughs) Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, up to the task. And they said, okay, whether the president does it or not, you are going to begin to implement this reconstruction. And uh, he started doing it, so the president fired Stanton. And they said, you can't fire him. We just passed a law this year that says you cannot fire a person that we have approved. And he said, that's not constitutional. You have no right to make that law. And I have fired him, so there. (laughs) And, uh, oh, wow, it was, uh, tensions were mounting like crazy. And uh, I won't repeat some of the uh, foul things that were uh, said about the president. But uh, let me give you an idea of some of the emotion and the hatred that was going back and forth. Republican Senator Wendell Phillips of Massachusetts had previously said, let there be no compromise until every breathing soul who holds to the old American principles of constitutionalism, ceases to breathe. 
Okay, so there were people who hated, there were Republicans who hated the Constitution, wanted to do everything they could to abolish it. There were other Republicans who loved the Constitution, and they were not going to go along with what the radicals had done who had taken over uh, the party. And uh, so anyway, uh, the uh, Thaddeus Stevens talked to Congress into impeaching the president. They accused him of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, ultimately bringing 11 charges against uh, President Andrew Johnson. The first Republican to bring charges against him was, you can guess what state he was from, Massachusetts. And he had the audacity to tell the senators not to think of themselves as a court trying crimes according to judicial principles. He said, just think of yourselves as a Congress who are deciding a political issue. And he said, the political issue is that Johnson is not the right man for the presidency, and that is the only question that needs to be settled. He knew he had no case for trying him and impeaching him on criminal issues. And, of course, uh, it was an incredibly uh, bad constitutional crisis that this precipitated, but they were just bullying their way forward. Uh, The radicals had persuaded, bribed, and intimidated most of the Republicans into voting their way, anyone who showed even the slightest hint that they might vote not guilty was eventually threatened with blackmail. They were digging up every bit of dirt that they could on these congressmen. Now, one key swing vote, uh, Lyman Trumbull of Illinois, he was warned by the Republican Campaign Committee President Charles Spencer that he would be hung from a lamppost if he came back to Chicago. Okay, that's his where he's from, the representative from Illinois. So it was a scary time to be in politics. The radicals knew for sure that they had 35 votes, but they needed 36 in order to be able to impeach uh, President Johnson. So they put enormous pressure on seven Republicans that they thought they might be able to sway. Now, six of them said, absolutely, we are not going to... This is a ridiculous kangaroo court. We're not going to vote guilty against them. But there was one man uh, who would not tell them which way he was going to vote. He says, that's not appropriate. If this is going to be a trial, I'll tell you at the time that uh, the vote comes up. He would not tell them. So they thought of him as a swing vote, and his name was Edmund G. Ross of Kansas. Now, just to give you an idea of the dirtiness of the business, they promised his brother $20,000 if the brother uh, would tell them which way their brother would vote. Well, that was a legal way of saying, if you can convince your brother (laughs) to vote the right way, we'll give you $20,000. Well, when that didn't work, Ben Butler said, tell the damn scoundrel that if he wants money, there is a bushel of it to be had. And so everywhere Ross turned, people were saying, you have to vote guilty. So don't just think modern politics is dirty. There have been a number of other times in American history where politics was dirty. It was dirty. Anyway, the vote took place on May 16, and every seat in the Senate was filled in the Balkanese. This was high drama uh, in America. Chief Justice began to call for the votes, and each of the senators began to say either guilty or not guilty. And the vote finally came up to Senator Ross. He stood up and every eye was on him. And he said later, it was like looking down into an open grave. Friendship, position, wealth, everything that makes life desirable to an ambitious man were about to be swept away by my answer. He was very intimidated. He spoke 
softly his answer and a lot of people couldn't hear him and so the chief justice says uh, give your vote again give it louder so very loudly he said not guilty and so that vote was law i mean yeah by one one vote and on all of the other charges uh the results were the same now if you've never been in a position like that it's hard to appreciate the difficulty of standing for principle against your party it's extremely tough And it's not just the peer pressure, it's the fear of repercussions, which is the next vote. Uh, Excuse me, the next point. (laughs) You can vote on whether you need the next point. Uh, uh, Point seven. Jonathan was faithful even when he was assaulted with fury. Let's begin reading at verse 30. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send, bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And I believe there he's talking about treated David shamefully. Probably everybody there was amazed that Saul would be willing to try to kill his own son. I mean, after all, he had just finished saying, the reason we're trying to kill David is so that you can be on the throne. And then he goes and tries to kill his own son. But that's the way anger frequently is. It's totally, totally irrational. And if any of you struggles with this kind of irrational anger that tries to lash out, you need to deal with it. In this case, uh, the anger almost made uh, Saul murder his son. And um, uh, with the, the situation of Cain, God says, if you don't conquer it, it will conquer you. And it did. Eventually, Cain's anger ended up making him murder his own brother. But let's get back to our whole discussion of faithfulness under pressure. When Saul verbally lashed out at Jonathan in verses 30 through 31, it would have been very easy to give in, just to have peace. And it would have been even easier for Jonathan because he loved his father. He was loyal to his father. So you can kind of think of it this way. Think of Jonathan as being in a political party And things are not going to go very well for him if he doesn't support the Speaker of the House, okay, so to speak. Things are going to go very bad for him if he doesn't support them. And uh, when Jonathan continued to defend David, all hell broke loose. And I think very literally all hell broke loose because this was demonic. And a lot of anger is. We need to realize Satan can take advantage of us, according to Ephesians, when we give in to anger. Well, that's exactly what happened to Senator Edmund Ross. The floodgates of vilification were opened up against him and against the six other uh, Republicans who had not caved in. 
And if you want to get just a tiny insight into why it is people go as crusaders into Washington, D.C., they're going to change this country. And within months, they're voting completely different than they had promised. Just read this story. The pressures are enormous. I think we need to have some sympathy, but at the same time, realize why it's so important for people of character to go in there. If you vote for a guy who says the right things, does not have the character, he'll change. He'll change over time. That's why it says he must he who rules must be just ruling in the fear of God. Isn't that what uh, David said? He has to be. That's an absolute, an, uh, absolute essential for somebody in, polis, uh, in politics. He must rule in the fear of God. Anyway, the pressures were enormous. Ross and the other Republican holdouts were called traitors. Friends and supporters uh, condemned them. Dirt was dug up on them. Slander was spread about them, and it is no surprise that they were not able to win re-election to the Senate, and they were not able to win any other uh, political office. Their whole career was trashed because of this vote. Uh, They were treated like dirt. It was a very heavy price to pay, and yet every one of them afterwards said it was worth it, and uh, we believe that we did the right thing. We need more men like that. Uh, The senator from Kansas told his wife, the millions of men cursing me today will bless me tomorrow for having saved the country from the greatest threat it ever faced. Now, there are very few senators, very few congressmen today who are willing to do the right thing, even the necessary thing, to keep our country from bankruptcy. What's been happening is they've been caving into pressure, caving into the threats of the power brokers. And brothers and sisters... You don't have to be a powerful person to stymie such tyrants. Edmund Ross was not a powerful person. He was a nobody. Nobody even knew about him hardly until this vote. (laughs) So he did not win because he was powerful. He made a difference because he was willing to be faithful even though all the fury of the nation would be unleashed against him. And um, he was a promise keeper. He had promised to uphold the Constitution, and he kept his word. So ask God for the backbone needed to be faithful. Sometimes you're going to need courage. You're going to need that backbone. Okay, point number eight. Despite the danger that he now faced, Jonathan showed his faithfulness by continuing to fulfill all the rest of his promises, even though he's been burned. He's, He's had negative backlash because he's fulfilled one promise, but he's going to fulfill the rest of his promises even though he knows there's going to be continuing backlash. Look at verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the appointed time with David, and a little lad was with him. And then the text goes on to say, show how Jonathan fulfilled every single promise that he had made before. Brothers and sisters, he was a promise keeper even though he had already suffered for keeping his promises. He'd already suffered. And if you are not a promise keeper, if you have found that the tentacles of the world's thinking has already grabbed your heart and it's making you so tempted to be unfaithful, you need to cut those tentacles off. Uh, And I'm going to give you four ways right now how you can cut those tentacles off by faith. First of all, You need to look at promise-breaking the way God looks at promise-breaking. You need to see it as being the heinous sin that God sees it as. Tag-teaming with Rodney from last week, I would urge you to meditate 
on passages like Psalm 24, Galatians 3.15, and come into agreement with God that, yes, this is a he and a sin. It is not a trifle. There are so many Christians who, when they get mad at their spouse, they threaten with divorce. Now, even if they have never followed through and maybe don't have an intention of following through, that is a great wickedness to threaten to be a promise breaker. It is heinous. It is wicked. It is awful, and it needs to be repented of. And so we need to, first of all, come into agreement with God that all of the unfaithfulness we see around our nation defiles our nation. It is a stench in God's nostrils. And I think if you see it as wicked as it is, it'll help you to stand up when times are tough. Say, boy, that is such a nasty thing. I am not going to be a covenant breaker. I'm not going to be a promise breaker. Proverbs 20, verse 23 says that diverse weights and dishonest scales are an abomination to God. It's unfaithfulness. Now, that means our whole monetary system should be considered an abomination to us because it is an abomination to Him. It is nothing but unjust weights and measures. And if you don't believe so, let me give you several articles that will demonstrate that it is a bunch of unjust weights uh, and measures. Ezekiel 16, and again in Ezekiel 18, he calls breaking contracts an abomination, an abomination. Luke 16, verse 15 says, What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There is so much that goes on in Washington, D.C., that people think this is good, and God would say that is an absolute abomination. It's certainly true of promise breaking. So first of all, look at the sin the way God sees it. Secondly, repent of that sin and turn away from it. Uh, without repentance, we're, and, and it's got to be from the heart, say, Lord, if I don't hate this as much as I should, give me that hatred, but we need to repent of it. Thirdly, we need to receive God's faithfulness by faith. This is not something we stir up in our own flesh. Uh, Galatians 3, I think, is quite clear on that. It is something we receive by faith uh, from uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, it's not by our own striving. It's the renewing of our minds. It's by grace, received by faith. Then fourthly, we need to reinforce all of that by modeling faithfulness to our children, teaching faithfulness to our children, rebuking them when they are unfaithful, disciplining them when they are unfaithful, praying faithfulness into existence, and honoring faithfulness wherever it exists. So let's be a congregation of promise keepers. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on it, but in verses 36 through 40, we see that faithfulness is not naive, nor is it in your face or boasting or flaunting. Uh, Jonathan doesn't have to prove his faithfulness by you know, organizing a big march and protest against his father. He proves his faithfulness by quietly being faithful, but he does it with caution. And I want you to notice the caution in verses 36 through 40. Then he said to his lad, now, run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them into the city. Now, even though um, 
the lad was Jonathan's own servant, he, he, he was being very, very cautious. He didn't want the lad to know. Maybe it's for the lad's own, own safety. Who knows uh, why? But faithfulness with us sometimes needs to take cautions. And that caution might simply be making sure our wife and our, our children are going to be cared for should we die. Uh, sometimes the, the caution might be to not provoke an attack upon yourself or your family with political foolishness. There's a huge difference between being faithful like uh, Senator Ross was to do the right thing and inviting attack. He didn't invite attack against himself. And there are some people who seem to relish the confrontation more than the cause that they are being faithful to. In fact, sometimes they almost undermine, they jeopardize the cause because they like the fight so much, okay? So Jonathan doesn't take needless risks in his attempt to fulfill his vows. I see further evidence of faithfulness in the touching farewell that they give to each other in verses 41 through 42. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. He, saw, he says, go in peace. And they could go in peace because they knew they were doing the right thing and they could trust on God to do, you know, for the results, whatever the results might be. Now, it didn't make their departure easy, but it definitely made the departure much more bearable. I don't know about you, but for me, having a guilty conscience is unbearable because it just eats at you and gnaws at you and gnaws at you. So you can go in peace when you are being faithful. And uh, you just need to evaluate your own hearts, whether your heart is at peace with the Lord, whether you have been uh, faithful to your commitments to Him. When you are focused on God's faithfulness like these two were, it makes your own faithfulness not only worthwhile, but it makes it much easier to, to engage in. They were doing their duty. They were trusting the Lord for the results. And I would urge you to a life of faithfulness because you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt, God will prove faithful to you. Scripture says every word of God is pure. That means you can trust it. Uh, scripture says the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. They're guaranteed. God is a faithful God. And by the way, that scripture indicates that faithfulness is focused in Christ. God's faithfulness was demonstrated in the cross, and our faithfulness flows from the cross. Here's what John Calvin said. True faith confines its view so entirely to Christ that it neither knows nor desires to know anything else. So if you have a supreme trust in the cross of Christ, not only is it going to continually remind you that God keeps His promises to His own herd, but it's going to give you the power to be able to imitate God and to keep your promises as well. Promises, you know, faithfulness is not about trying harder, and, and Rodney made that so clear in the last two uh, sermons. It's about, by faith, living in Christ, having Christ live through you. It's, um, it's uh, seeing His faithfulness lived in you more and more. Now, Jonathan and David would face continuing pressures in the upcoming chapters. And if you look at the last phrase there of this chapter, it shows that Jonathan went back home to serve his dad. 
Wow, that, w- that would be incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. Uh, let me just give you one idea of the difficulties that would be there. I've often wondered, as I've read the stories of Saul pursuing David, where's Jonathan? He's almost like the second in command. Where's, where's Jonathan? Did he stay home? Is he in the army? What kinds of pressures is he going to face? What kind of dilemmas are, is he going to face? We're not told where he was, whether he bailed out, whether he went along with the army to see if he could do something helpful for David. We do know that in chapter 23, he sneaks away. He visits David. He again affirms his covenant. He encourages David hard. He says, I know you're going to be king, and I hope I can be second in command to you. But we're not told what kinds of pressures. We just know if David goes back home with Saul, he's going to constantly be facing pressures to compromise himself, but he does not. He remains faithful in even the most difficult of circumstances. He allowed the pressures to drive him to God's grace. And in conclusion, I want to read a poem that gives a Christ-centered focus on being faithful despite the pressures to break your word. Now, I don't know who wrote this. I've seen this poem attributed to A.B. Simpson, Mrs. Uh, Charles Komen, uh, Annie Johnson Flint, and some people say anonymous. <laughs> I don't know who wrote it, but it's a, it's a great little poem. It says, Pressed out of measure and pressed to all length, pressed so intensely it seems beyond strength, pressed in the body and pressed in the soul, pressed in the mind, Till the dark surges roll. Pressure by foes and pressures by friends. Pressure on pressure till life nearly ends. Pressed into knowing no helper but God. Pressed into loving the staff and the rod. Pressed into liberty where nothing clings. Pressed into faith for impossible things. Pressed into tasting the joy of the Lord. Pressed into loving a Christ life outpoured. Brothers and sisters, when you feel pressure from your society, you feel pressure from your circumstances, you feel pressure from even your friends to be unfaithful, look to the cross of Christ. It not only demonstrates that God is a promise keeper even to his own hurt, but it helps you to keep your promises as well. So in an age of unfaithfulness, please, please be a faithful people. Amen. Father, we thank you for this word, the illustrations of Jonathan and David who proved faithful and of other uh, men who have proved faithful in other circumstances. We want to be like them. We want to have the backbone to do what is right and we want to have the self-sacrificing nature to do what is right. We pray, Father, that your spirit would be upon us taking your faithfulness, your covenant keeping and working that covenant thoroughly in us and through us and into the relationships that we engage in. Father, help us to be a covenant-keeping community. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.